0: Hi, my name's Ali, and you're listening to Saltgrass. Season four is wrapped up, and season five is on its way. And in the meantime, between seasons, I have a few things to share that are not the usual Saltgrass fare. This week and next week, I have a two-part episode for you. Myself and some fellow podcasters got together last year in a panel discussion at the International Nonfiction Now conference. The chat is almost two hours long, so I've broken it up into two episodes. The first half will air today, right now, and the other half will air next week. The conference is over, but it was an amazing space full of people passionate about journalism and non-fiction, writing, filmmaking and podcasting. In the first half of our chat, which you'll hear today, we take some time to introduce ourselves and the shows we produce. It was a wonderful experience to be part of this thing and to get to know some like-minded podcasters from around Australia. To introduce ourselves and explain what we do we decided to interview each other which turned out to be a little bit of a dangerous decision (laughs) because we all produce interview shows and we like to delve deep in conversations and we were all really curious about each other so we could have talked pretty much forever and I really think we did well to keep it as short as we have. So this first episode is a lovely little glimpse into the hearts and minds and motivations of some climate podcasters in Australia and New Zealand, including myself. And next week we jump into the discussion part of the
1: session. Hello and welcome. The mission of Nonfiction Now, as expressed by the University of Arizona during their 2018 hosting of the event, is nonfiction now is unique in being neither a conventional academic conference nor a writer's festival, but rather a conversation among peers, from well established writers and artists to those just starting out. And this panel is just that a range of practitioners, from the professional to the passionate hobbyist, in a medium that, while not brand new, is the result of technology younger than all of our panelists, and which is not yet quite solidified. From the true crime wave to the spree of corporate acquisitions, podcasting has shown that it's not going anywhere as a medium. That its blend of radio production inputs, all but free distribution, and on-demand availability is a good fit for our day and age. This panel includes the makers of climate-engaged podcasts using the medium of podcasting to tackle the world's foundational crisis, climate change. You'll first hear from each of these creators in turn about their work and process, as we took turns hosting each other, using those interviewing skills we've developed from our podcasting. And then a round table, our own mini hui, where we engage on a set of questions and with each other's answers to them. Thank you for joining us for this chat about using podcasting for climate engagement. Let's begin.
2: Hey, I'm Jess. I'm Ash. And we're two mates on a mission to do something about this climate crisis.
0: 90% of people in Australia want stronger
2: action on climate. Get get going, 90%. That, that's a lot. Like, go. So we knocked on Greenpeace's door. Mm-hmm. Got a horn. <laughs> we found out what we should do. But this is one way that you can directly change the system. And we did it. Together.
1: Uh, we can get the pens and fences out. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes.
3: Oh my gosh, is this... Is this and now Ash and I feel heaps better. Solar panels save to well. So please subscribe to Heaps Better wherever you get your podcasts and come with us on a journey from climate anxiety to climate action.
1: I'm to save the planet.
2: Because
4: trying to save the planet is heaps better together. together. <laughs> Three, two, one. And we're on... Well, thank you, Jess and Ash. We're here to chat about you guys and about Heaps Better, the podcast that you both brilliantly put together. Um, so without further ado, I think we just launch into the first question. I'm curious, how did Heaps Better come about and how did Greenpeace get involved?
3: Well, Jess and I uh, first started talking about making a podcast after I had posted during the bushfires in a, maybe a lot of distress about how little action has been taken by the government and what could we do and trying to talk about this idea of maybe making a spreadsheet featuring all of the things that you could do and how long they take and how much they might cost you if there is any cost and, like, trying to make it as frictionless as people for people to do those actions as possible. So it initially started with this idea of a of a spreadsheet, but then Jess and I met up and realized that our powers are not in spreadsheet making. Our powers are in podcasting. Um and so then we started talking with AudioCraft and Jess is just more uh entrenched in the AudioCraft front. I've been working with them in a freelance capacity for a while, but she's a producer with them, so I'll let you take away the, the way we got involved with Greenpeace. So, so AudioCrafts, a
2: production company, product, podcast production company that I work with, and they'd already been speaking with Greenpeace about working out some way of doing a, a podcast about climate action, and I think it all just timed really perfectly. Uh, but what I think what Ash and I were feeling was that really wild anxiety of January, 2020 in in Australia, we're in Sydney and it was blanketed with bushfire smoke. And we just had that, it was that feeling of like, this is really desperate. And there seems to be a lot of inaction and what can can people like us do? What do we do with our time? What do we do with our money? And you have a Google of it and, or, you know, you you get so much advice. So I think it was trying to combat this feeling of, of maybe futility and just a, a real desperate need to put this Um, anxiety or this, this will to do something into action, but find out the most practical ways that we could do it just as people.
3: Yeah. And a lot of our friends are in the same boat. Everyone was wanting to do something, but overwhelmed and didn't really have any kind of roadmap. And so we approached people who did have a roadmap and did have a strategy.
2: So Greenpeace were incredible like that. They, I think they liked the idea of um, nor- you know, normal people, everyday people who weren't in the climate movement and the climate engagement movement, climate policy, climate business, whatever it was, um, you know, we're, we're in the creative industries. We met at a community radio station, Ash and I, years, years ago. They liked the idea of that message of being like, okay, what can everyday people, like how can we get involved and how can we break down some of this maybe jargon or, or confusing science stats, policy um and then they were incredible because they just opened the door to us and led us into their research and matched us up with a whole lot of experts in their team and helped us really understand. I mean, like I said, the keep cup thing before, one of the first things was they were like, no no, guys, you're gonna be, you're gonna be thinking of collective action and systemic change. And we we're like, I remember we talked so much about the idea of the keep cup being so much guilt going into this like little thing, like, you know, the coffee cups. And that, that so much of our individual, so much pressure is put on, consum- on like us as consumers and individuals to be doing the right thing rather than these businesses or, you know, th- these systems that are not set up right. And so there's all this guilt that goes into something as simple as recycling or a plastic bag or a keep cup. And so they were just they were really fantastic in in actually helping us to understand how they as an organisation work and how this kind of bigger systemic change and collective action stuff works.
3: And it also made it a much more positive experience to not be able to um, you know go through each episode with a focus on almost like blaming people and changing people's actions in the day to day in a way that was kind of like a big ask for people to you know have really significant behavioural change that doesn't seem very sexy or exciting. Whereas what we actually got to with the podcast through working with them through their strategy and through all the research is actions that have a bit more of a a massive impact. And a lot of them are things that you can just do once and then you'll create a real significant ongoing impact that is going to last forever and is in a lot of cases irreversible. So yeah, it's the interesting
4: thing about the keep cup um, kind of, I don't know if you guys are feeling the same way, but I hear the Keep Cup conversation come up a lot. But I'm like, the Keep Cup is still good to use. It's a symbol. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, so that spreadsheet that you guys made, did that did many of the kind of things that you had plotted down, that was kind of became the framework for heaps Better? Or did that kind of get thrown out the window and Greenpeace gave you a whole new lease on what you were going to do with the pod?
3: Some of the things were on there, because I think that we were all getting a bit more of a sense that um, changing our finances and stuff like that can can have an impact because that's being pushed by by a lot of different people. Um, but a lot of things just fell down the to-do list because they had more of a focus on on kind of consumer behavioral change. And at the end of the day, working with Greenpeace on this podcast and knowing what we know through their research and through their extremely knowledgeable and multifaceted team – Um, It just made it clear that it it was never going to be a worthwhile podcast for anyone to to listen to if it wasn't going to focus on systemic change and how to get involved in that because that's something that we can see doesn't really exist. Maybe we're blind to it in Australia and it does exist elsewhere out there, but we knew that we were going to have a short run for our first season and we wanted to sort of fill it up with as much – uh, actionable and kind of like, you know, the, the first things you should do that have the biggest impact. And now we're going to tell you what that impact would be. And this is how that impact can grow. And this is how you are powerful so that people could, rather than being like, Oh, I feel bad. I want to change what I'm doing. How can I do better? They can just be like, Whoa, that's such bang for your buck. That's such win for your minute. If I do that and it takes me five to 10 minutes, or if I do that in a, in a, you know, takes me maybe like a, a breakfast with a friend to accomplish that, then I've made so much progress so quickly. And we wanted it also to be to be fun and to be something that you could do socially because that I think gives it gives the whole kind of set of actions ability to grow and be shared and to be demystified. And that was I mean it goes back to the original idea of making a spreadsheet is just kind of removing friction and confusion and overwhelm from the process of getting things done. And so the whole first series follows things in the certain order um, that allows you to really kind of uh, take orderly steps towards basically by the end of the first series, Once, if you've done the things that you were able to do, you should be feeling very freaking proud of yourself, you know, and feeling very good about your impact because the impact is is clear and, and tangible and we know that it makes a difference. And we have experts like Simon Holmes Court, and, you know, financial experts and people from market forces and, you know, all these great people who are able to quantify that impact. So it, it becomes a lot more exciting because you don't feel like you're just kind of like, you know, dropping a, a drip in the ocean and being like, I'm doing my bit, you know, you actually feel like you're really, and then, and then you feel excited to talk about it because it's cool to know these things, you know, you see how the world works.
2: Ash, you, the, like one of the biggest things you said just then was the breakfast with a friend, which for us was, was part of Maybe the thing that that stayed with us from the spreadsheet was that we wanted to have a way of understanding all this stuff. We basically were like, someone just needs to make this really simple and give us a straight, simple answer so that we can share it with all our friends and do it with all our friends. And we kind of hatched this idea over a series of um, coffee or some cocktails <laughs> pre lockdown. You know, our last our last espresso quarantini, I think it was. But but it was this 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 sense of when we do these things with people like us and with our friends, it is so much more achievable because you can egg each other on and you can help break things down and like you can split up the work of, re- you know, you research this, you, b- you bring this, this idea to the table and we'll come together and do it um, together. And it's, it's even that, those kind of collective stories that whether it's just a bunch of mates um, at a pub or at a cafe or at somebody's house for breakfast um, or, or the parents from the school group, like the Albert Park Kinder Sustainable School Network when people come together and have that group to that in that community to to help give you some momentum, then you can actually get some really serious stuff done. Even even if it's just making a
4: podcast, <laughs> you know. Ash, you spoke about the the most beneficial part for you was um, actually you were worried that it was going to be quite stressful going into it, um, but you found that digging into it and digging into the science and speaking to all these amazing people actually was most um uplifting that was like the most kind of rejuvenating part of it um i'm curious just to round off what has been the best nugget of wisdom that you've both learned through making the
3: pod totally and i feel like maybe for me it was the interview we did with annie leonard who's the ceo of greenpeace usa and she's phenomenal oh my gosh just such a hero But the way that she talked about the fact that our politicians work for us made it really land for me for the first time because I think that we can sort of like uh, maybe trust their authority and feel like, you know, uh, they're they're maybe, maybe working for us but they're kind of working for the fossil fuel companies in Australia and the way that she framed it made me feel like we really do have a right to ask for a lot more and if it's going to be... Uh, maybe somehow radical the way that we do that, it's valid. <laughs> it's our planet, you know? So that really, that stuck out to me.
2: I think it's when Simon holmes a put showed us this graph that he'd made of shutting down, the impact of shutting down one coal station being as powerful as shutting down our entire domestic aviation industry in terms of um, emissions reductions. And the way that he put that in a visual way and was like, we can do this. You know, there's already one that's shut down, you know, shut down just the other day from a bunch of community action. So, you know, it's, it was something like that, that that I think made it seem how rather than trying to change an entire industry, just just ending this one is, <laughs> is the most efficient.
4: Nice to hear how it started and how you guys got your fingers dirty and you created an amazing pod that I've listened to and I've loved. Um, you did such a great job and bringing in the comedy and, and obviously your friendship was so fun to listen to. I feel like I know you both really well, just from listening to the pod and, and going on that journey with you. And, and like you said, playing the fool, it's, it's, it's so, it makes it so much more accessible to everyone. Um, so I think, yeah, you guys really nailed it and I hope you make another pod together Thank another you. season yeah, two we've, or something. Yeah,
3: we're talking about it, but we'll see if Greenpeace has capacity over the next hour or so long. They're doing many things. There's many campaigns. So a podcast feels like a bit of a luxury, even if it is a climate podcast. Thanks so much for chatting with us. It was so great.
4: Hello, and welcome to The Nature Between Us, a podcast for all your eco-inquiries and musings. My name is Tessa and I'll be your host. I'm an Aussie actress, a voiceover artist and an environmental master's student. First of all, thanks for tuning in. It's super cool to have you joining me.
1: Tessa, that jazzy intro to your show that, that you love, you're on tape as loving it and you never want to change it. Why is that there? And um, what do you love about it?
4: Um, I have to be honest. I, when I first made my podcast, I was like, what? Everyone has a cool intro song. And um, I went to a website that, had, that gave free music. And I was like, I like something that's going to be kind of like wake you up. Um, And it was like one of the first songs that I found on this website that gave out free royalty, like royalty-free music, and it just said Big Jazz, or it had some really funny name. And I was like, that looks like, you know, that looks like it could be a good song. And I just picked it, and then I fell in love with it. And you're right, I'm very unapologetic about it. Every episode in Season 1 of the pod, it just – it like I love it even more, and I joke about how I'm just going to slowly put more and more of it in, and it, there'll be no podcast;
1: it will just be the jazzy intro song. <laughs> a woman named Gretchen Miller, who's actually finishing off a PhD to become a like doctor in podcasting <laughs> about environmental storytelling, which is it's cool that we're at that point. Um, in her thesis, which is yeah, I'm looking forward to reading; it's going to be out soon. She talks a lot about. Um, how using natural sounds and the sounds of the natural world in, in, you know, podcasts is one place to put them, but like just exposing people to sounds from the natural world kind of makes us connect to it more and have more of a relationship and a care for the natural world. And I'm kind of curious about if you agree with that sort of thesis and if you could, if you would, would you add more natural sounds into the podcast with the goal of it being sort of reconnecting people with the natural world
4: first of all i 100 percent agree with that thesis um one of my favorite podcasts is off track with um ann jones i think and um it's amazing and they they're they're like half hour episodes and there's a lot of nature sounds a lot of birds a lot of whales, a lot of everything, so many beautiful, amazing sounds. And and it really immerses you straight away in the world of what we're, you know, what the episode's about. Um, And I think the first couple of episodes I ever listened to of that podcast was about lyrebirds, And so, of course, the lyrebird has such an incredible call and it's so fluid and changes and mimics and everything. So first of all, yes, I would 100% having fallen in love with off tracks. Um, I would love to include more noises and, and nature sounds and, and everything. Um, it would just be a matter of me getting better at editing and ho- hopefully Laura can help me with that. <laughs> um, or, you know, you know, people maybe can send in some, some like amazing recordings or I can go out in the field and capture them myself. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's a, it's a really beautiful and easy way to immerse yourself in nature and remind yourself because especially a lot of us live in urban spaces where we don't often hear the sounds of nature beyond a crow or a magpie it's really something that i agree with gretchen that can immerse and connect people with nature so yeah
1: so you're an environmental master's student that's one one of the hats you wear but of course you're also in film and television you're in the entertainment industry and I'm curious from the environmental student side, how many of the people you had on in your first season, maybe how many people you are going to have on in your, your future seasons is, um, how many of those people you met or learned of through your, your course?
4: Mostly I would say no one really I met through my course. Um, but definitely what I was learning through my course sparked curiosity that I wanted to, focus on in future. So then I were kind of like, you know, I did a subject on, um, urban planning and kind of, and then I was like, Oh, this would be great to talk to someone about sustainable cities. And of course my partner, um, knew Jess and was like, Jess Miller would be great. And I was like, yes, she would be amazing if she ever agreed to it. And of course I'm so thankful that she did because it's one of my favorite episodes. Um, so yeah, I can definitely, say that my, my degree and studying and being actively like, uh, exposed to different topics and different kind of conversations and, and, you know, all of that, um, sparked my curiosity and, and fed as a lot of inspiration for a, a, a number of the topics. Um, but in terms of actually connecting with the, with the, uh, the guests, um, that was kind of more independently done with, yeah, me searching them out or. Um, someone saying, "Oh, you know, who would be great would be this person. You should try. You know, you know how it goes with finding guests. You just, you just shoot out an email, and hopefully they reply." Or, yeah, I call it
1: planting seeds. Planting <laughs> seeds, spread them yes. far and wide. And see yeah. what happens. <laughs> yes, uh, Have any of those come from your other work in in you know acting and in the lands of TV and film? Mm. I haven't. No,
4: most of them kind of come from all over. Yeah. Social media is a great tool. I think quite a few I reached out to on Instagram and just said, hey, I'm making a podcast and I hope, you know, you'd be interested, but I totally understand if you have way better things to do than talk to me about (laughs) environmental issues. Um, but everyone is so generous and lovely and giving and yeah, I've been really, really lucky with, um, receiving positive uh feedback and, and excitement to be involved. So yeah.
1: I'm really glad I asked that question because it's just it's very interesting to hear that yeah, you know, like your method of going about getting guests is the same way that mine was and every other podcaster I know. And it's like, oh, you know, we kind of have this picture that, you know, someone who's on TV can just, oh, no. you know, no, have no, a Rolodex no. and people will like No,
4: it's, it's the like, same. No, you just, yeah, yeah you write a long message <laughs> and you hope that they read it. And
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> like, did you have like a person in mind or a, a type of person in mind for who you thought this podcast was for? Didn't have a specific person, but
4: I did kind of have an idea of who I was trying to reach. And it's not a it's not an age group or you know any sort of like specific demographic. It is really just that person who wants to know more but doesn't know how to go about that and I know that so many podcasts are trying to reach that same person um which is great, and that's why they all should exist, and we all should listen to them. but I suppose yeah, that person that that maybe would not That maybe would like be shy about asking the the, 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 you know the kind of entry-level questions that wants to just be like i don't really get climate change or like i don't really understand what fracking is and then to find an episode of the nature between us that's all about fracking um which i haven't done yet but would be great to you know just that breaks it down and um in a kind of yeah like an easy to digest way so i guess yeah the person the person that wants to know more and wants to kind of be educated but not be filled, made to feel guilty about their life because, you know, I, I do worry that sometimes like that kind of like information dump can be quite um, off-putting in a way.
1: So Back to basics, break it down, make things very relatable. And uh, it's remarkable the lack of jargon and acronyms and insider talk in your show. It's very, like, you, you you step into the role for your guests as the friend at the barbecue who's very interested in what you're doing, what you've got to say, but has no idea about what they do. So there's no, like, so do you know this uh, this, this term? No. <laughs> Explain it to me like I know nothing. Uh, you uh, Hypothetically, you know, s- someone who's willing to ask the, you know, the, the head weather reporter for the ABC morning show what a cloud is that kind of hypothetical. <laughs> Real story. What's, what's a moment for making the show that looking back on it, that's meant a lot to you? That like, it's not to put it in these terms, essentially, you don't have to answer it in these terms. But for me, I'd be like, what's the most value you've gotten out of making the show?
4: Ah, uh, my answer is just going to be like, literally everyone that I speak to. I can't pinpoint one moment that's more of more value than any other like every guest I've learned so much from and I've had such an enjoyable time speaking to them about the topic that they're specializing in I really can't I'm sorry Mark I can't I can't even like pick one moment They're all, everyone, anytime anyone agrees to come on the podcast, I'm like, oh, thank you. (laughs) And then they speak to me and they have so much to share. It's, yeah, everything's so, so valuable.
1: Life in the 2020s is different. There's more masks.
2: Hey guys, what's up? You different options for DIY at-home masks.
1: Less plane travel, more fires, more smoke, more coastal erosion. Of
4: course, the sand does come and go. But again, I've never seen it like this before, not in my lifetime.
1: Not enough water in some places and too much in others. A woman's been rescued from a tree and a train derailed as parts of the state continue to be battered by wild What's a person to do in a world with an already changed climate? Did I say already changed? Yeah, and on track much more change. Shifting baseline syndrome, a phenomenon of lowered expectations in which each generation regards a progressively poorer natural world as normal. In fact, the only thing we know for certain about the future is that our already weird present is just the beginning. We are through the looking glass. The shows in the Climactic Collective are your guide, created by fellow travelers. But without feeling the need to constantly explain the greenhouse effect.
0: Greenhouse gases are a bit like a doona.
1: So check out Climactic.fm and our flagship podcast Climactic to get involved and engaged with the climate crisis. Because these are climactic times and everything has changed.
0: I kind of want to get to your origin story first, because I know that you have been a long-term podcast consumer in a big way, and I'm just wondering how that ties in with your transition into actually creating, and what was your first project when you started creating podcasts?
1: Yeah, that that is the story, just, you know, podcast nerd, like an absolute <laughs> fanboy, you just never saw me as a kid without headphones on, like mm. that was my go-to thing. Like. Like, my parents and, like, you know, family members would joke of, like, you know, they'd see my ears and they're like, oh, good, proof they exist, because we had no idea what was under there. Because you look like Maybe you do we're... now with headphones on. Exactly. <laughs> this is Mark in his native environment. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, like, uh, for, for me, having sort of grown up with this stuff, there was, you know, it's like the classic story of, like, you know, the, the kid who's really into film, and then they find out that, oh, wow, they can go to film school and they can... Studied this stuff and th- they too can learn how to make it but like for me I didn't go that path of going into audio engineering I didn't like I, was, I wasn't I was in one place very long as a kid growing up so I didn't have the standard route of getting involved in a local community radio station or a college radio station um, it was like only in my very late teens that a friend had a slot on a, a student radio here in, in Auckland, New Zealand and um, I was going along and like know jumping on the graveyard radio shift and learning how to speak into a mic and thinking oh this is this is fun I'll maybe (laughs) do more of this one day but it wasn't until um my my wife and I now wife um we moved over to China and we were teaching English over there for a couple years and it was over there I'm like I'm exposed to so many just cool stories and like just so Mm -hmm. much sort of like, like, life is happening here in such a different way than I've ever experienced before. And my wife started vlogging about it. And I was like, oh, I should really start a podcast. So I, like, started looking into it. And then I realized how hard it is to distribute a podcast from China because ah. of the Great Firewall and, like, there's actually yeah right constraints. It's actually really difficult. So I decided not to. And I instead picked it up when we moved to the UK in uh, 2016. And it was all, you know brexit was all in the works and everyone was like in a furor about the eu and i'm just like i'm a hero i'm here as an american kiwi kid and i don't know anything about the eu or the uk or this common market or the history of all this stuff so i um was like i'll i'll, I'll do a, a series about this as an excuse to talk to people like i i was straight away like i'm not gonna make a podcast for anyone but myself and the Making of the podcast is just an excuse to, to find out more about a thing I'm interested in, yeah. um, and it was called Me and You, EU, and uh, it was interesting. I'd never see the light of day. It's now deleted. It's not anywhere on the internet. So, like, I, I had an experience of making like six or seven episodes of this thing, and then being like, okay, I learned a lot. Delete. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. <laughs> do that. I, I love that you can. and like it, It's not still hanging around. I shouldn't you know, say that so uh, assertively in case someone does manage to drag it out of a hard drive or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's interesting because so- it sounds like you started right from the start
0: looking at social political issues. Um, and of course, in the thick of Brexit and all of that stuff, that was an obvious
1: choice. But you obviously have an interest in those topics as well. It was what was going on in those headphones I was wearing all the time, Um, just seven or eight hours a day of politics and sort of geopolitical stuff. Um, You know, being 2016, that year especially, was like my high watermark for podcast consumption. It was, honestly, I could name every politics show from New York Times, Um, I forget the... Chicago sometimes had, had a really good podcast as well. Uh, Five thirty eight, the the data analytics guys. Uh, Washington Post, of course. All the the UK newspapers are putting out politics podcasts at this time because there's so much to talk about. So I was like trying to listen across the spectrum in a way that like I found that I, I can listen to people I disagree with quite quite easily. I can even find sometimes them to be persuasive and at least. Explaining their perspective, but I can't read it. Like I can't read, hmm. uh, you know, uh, a politics rag.
0: That's interesting. I, I,
1: without getting upset, but yeah, if someone's telling me why they feel something, I'm like, okay. It's more like you're
0: down at the pub, and they're just like telling you their opinion, and it feels more like an opinion than someone writing it down permanently for all time on the written page is um... some.
1: <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, yeah. The, the the need to kind of. Be unequivocal or have a, such a strong assertive statement in writing whereas like if you're speaking to somebody you can be like well I don't I'm not sure exactly this is how I feel but here's a hypothetical yeah whereas that's so hard to write yeah yeah for sure
0: and so when did you start focusing on the climate and when did it crystallize for you as the topic that you really wanted to hone in on
1: yeah it was later than that um and talking to to sort of climate folks a lot since then, I realized I came into this very very much later in my life um climate anxiety and worries, and you know it was it was looked down on in like my kind of family setting, like you saw the lefties and the greenies and yeah uh, um so like i I thought you know pressing issues were. Potential conflicts between nation states and food security and you know, politics. Like like the very much the Kissinger kind of school of like, what what's what What's are important? The flaws with the world. Yeah, what's important? Mm. Um, so it was arriving in Melbourne, getting a job at like a hospitality, um, like a software company that was selling point of sale software for, for Hospital. And I was like going along to this. I was. I was presenting for the company at a trade show, and I got talking to a sustainability consultant, and they just framed it so well for me within this like 10 minute conversation of like, did you know that the hospitality industry puts out this much food waste, which is equivalent to this many cars on the road worth of methane, and I was just like, oh, this isn't something that's happening over there, this is actively part of the industry I'm in, and I'd, I'd been so relieved to arrive in the UK, much less Melbourne, after two years living in China, where I was like witnessing a a, a post-apocalypse environmental situation where you've got stagnant rivers and and dead mm-hmm. fish and like years you, I understand what an oceanic dead zone is. I've seen one very small in, mm-hmm. in the lake that was in the city I lived in. You'd go for a swim if you were brave. You'd smell very bad for a couple days after. And you just like <laughs> like swim past dead turtles. They're just bobbing in this lake and you're just like, Um, so after leaving that Mm. scene, I was like, oh, it's so much better that the environment's just good here and everything's fine. (laughs) 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 So then I I went down the rabbit hole and I just started talking to people who knew a lot more than me and had been involved for a lot, lot longer than me. And then by just saying, I'm here to learn, a lot of doors opened. Um, To the extent that I was invited, you know, I was was told, hey, you should apply to go to Climate Reality in 2019, which is the Al Gore group. So I did and went to Brisbane for, little did we know at the time, it was the last big Climate Reality event in person before all this happened. It was 800 Mm -hmm. people in a room, you know, just getting to meet Mike Cannon Brooks and Simon Holmes of Court and all like, you know, just the the mayor of um, the Torres Strait Islands. And just like, oh, okay. This whole movement and this whole space—it's—it's it's just people, and I've now met these people and pressed the flesh, and it's like, okay, uh, this isn't inscrutable. <laughs> this is very, very knowable and human, and welcoming yeah. if uh, if you get a good on-ramp into it.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And so, how did that lead to what's now the climactic network? And why did you think – I mean, for a start, what is a podcast network? Because a lot of people watching this might not know. And um, why did you want to make one? What did you think it would help
1: achieve? So after I'd started Climactic, which is one one podcast feed where myself and a co-host were just interviewing everyday people about how they felt about climate change and what they were doing about it, not trying to talk to the leaders, not trying to talk to the big names in the space, just Mm. everyday folks – um, I came across a lot of other people who wanted to create content as well and had a specific point of view and a cool intersection with things. So we had a, a psychologist who was uh, active with Psychology for a Safe Climate, which is a group of working psychologists and psychotherapists who are specifically like looking at how they can work on climate grief and climate topics. And I was like, well, you should have a podcast. And like, I've been thinking a lot about that, but I don't know where I'd start. And I said, well, I've got this feed. Why don't you just, well, first of all, let me help you make a few episodes, see if it's for you. And then you can put it out here on this feed. And then it became, well, why don't we have more than one show? Which has, like, already was a grab bag of me and my co-host doing episodes about what we were interested in. And that became three, four, five hosts very quickly as... Climactic took on more things, and then mm-hmm. I got a job at a big uh, enterprise podcast host, basically like a book publisher, um, where like all of a sudden me being a publisher of more than one show and running a network, which I'll explain in just a second, was uh, a good thing for me professionally in my job, and they basically just they gave us... Not to quote Fight Club to a great audience of nonfiction storytellers, but like we had corporate backing. Uh, we got, you know, in kind support. So a, a podcast network in a nutshell is so you've got one podcast and there's a lot of jobs that go into running that show, much less scaling it up. And a podcast network is just a simply economies of scale for the jobs that can be done by one person across multiple shows, rather than each show having to have a different person do that role. Um, what those roles are, what the shows need, depend on the shows. So if the show is selling advertising, there can be one person at the network who sells advertising spot, space on those shows across the network. Um, what it means in terms of climactic is simply, I, I kind of coordinate things and Herd Cats. I, um, I help <laughs> shows promote on each other's shows I help them come up with a good workflow for how to how to publish how to check their analytics and understand what's working and what's not and um, basically to centralize a lot of the tools and resources that people need to start a show Um, so is it just
0: you mostly doing all that stuff or do you have other people with different roles within the climactic network now
1: it's the, the the team is contracted and grown the team has grown and contracted over time uh, currently there's uh, a couple of the people who've helped me out with like guest publishing the the climactic show which is basically a curation of what's going on within the network what that means is every week we have an, a new episode out but selecting what that episode's going to be from the shows on the network introducing it getting approval finding out how to you know like, When to feature something at the right time for something that might be going on, relevant in the news. A couple members of the team have helped me out with that uh, guest producing role recently, which is my first time actually stepping back from being the one to publish a show every week uh, since April 2018. So I realized that was going on three and a half years until I'd since I'd last had a break from publishing a weekly show, which is that's pretty hectic. That's a lot. Yeah. It's just it became. normal. It just like became an hour of my Saturday of like, okay, it's time to like find an episode and record an intro. And I got good at doing it fast, but it's delightful to wake up and actually like, oh, what's going to be out today? I don't know. It's going to be a surprise. It was really good. Um, We've had someone writing a newsletter, which has been really good. They've just recently had to step back. So it's feeling like 2022 is going to be like a new phase for Climatic where you have to kind of rebuild and also come at it with maybe some fresh intentionality. Because three years ago there wasn't a lot of climate podcasts. Now there is. So what are we doing other than just being a collection of climate podcasts? Because that's no longer unique or potentially valuable. Like, Is it that these are particularly good climate podcasts? I'm not sure. Um, yeah. should, should that be it?
0: <laughs> and also you started the network while you were living in Australia and now you've moved back to New Zealand. And I know that for a while there, it was largely focused on Australian climate podcasts. And I imagine that would also be changing now that you're back in New Zealand and you're networking with different people and, you know,
1: not a lot of networking locally happening in the last couple of months because of lockdown, yeah. but it's definitely, it definitely was before. We were starting to build momentum. We definitely will be after, but honestly, my, my big hairy audacious goal for this is to have uh, shows in Australia, in New Zealand, in Fiji, in Tonga, in Samoa. And it's- so the Pacific region. Absolutely. So yeah. that's that's my name. Pan go-to. Pacific. Pan Pacific is the the goal and the scope of what I'd love to achieve.
3: So this is very exciting because I've been listening to your podcast a lot. I guess it's time to introduce you, Alison Hanley, or Ali as we're going to call you in this chat and your podcast is called Saltgrass. And can you tell us a bit about what saltgrass means and and where that kind of original kernel of the idea came for you with the podcast?
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting. It was something I sort of sat on for a couple of years before I made it happen, and I was tossing around names and all sorts of things, and I don't know. I, I The very first series I did, which was kind of like the pilot project, was back in 2018, and I got some local council Funding and I made eight episodes just to kind of test the idea, see if there was enough stories locally to talk about. Turns out there's more than enough stories <laughs> um, and also to test myself. So I've come from a community radio background and my local station was able to auspice that grant and I made the eight episodes for Main FM and yeah, it sort of was back then I called it an environment for change because I was trying to like play with words and see how to get environment and climate change and all that stuff in the title. And then by the time I got round to actually getting a second round of funding from the Community Broadcasting Foundation and they funded the bigger project that it's become, I think I realised that there were heaps and heaps and heaps of things out there playing with that kind of wording. And so I wanted something completely different, something a bit about the natural world, really, and so saltgrass is an actual plant that we have in Australia. It's quite rare, but it's out there. And it's a plant that can survive in really saline soils and can be an important species to stabilise soils when there's a lot of degradation and erosion and things like that. And so for me on lots of levels, the name then started to really work as what are people doing at a grassroots level about climate change and how can you know, salt of the earth people in regional and rural Australia because a lot of the climate movement is city-based and then there becomes this city-country divide and I feel like there's heaps happening and there's heaps of people who care about the risks of climate change in the regions but it's not that well known or that well...
3: That's really interesting. So it's kind of like, it's almost like, sounds as if you were making it for the movement to make sure that the movement because it's so exciting and there's so many parts to it are reflected but... I mean, that's also a question, who was your top of mind kind of audience member or were there, were there multiple that you thought would be really hungry for something like this?
0: So I started out really just thinking about my local radio station and its reach. <laughs> I knew I wanted to make it a podcast, but I, I didn't know how far that would go. But I wanted it to be available for people to listen to after because your one-hour slot on a radio station, once that goes to air, it's over. No one can listen to it anymore. So I really liked the idea of people being able to find it later and listen when they were ready to, which is the beauty of podcasting. But I think I knew that we had quite a rich local community around climate action and so I knew there were quite a few stories locally but after I'd made that first series I started working for the local sustainability group to really get in the mix and find out what was happening and be part of what was happening and then I really saw how much was going on and how many people
3: were working on so many different levels
0: to make change happen.
3: Totally, I remember that I was listening to an episode of yours today uh, and someone mentioned wicking beds and I was like, cool, I know what wicking beds are, but then I realized I only knew that about 10, like 10 months ago, max. And so you actually clarified that. And I think that that's so helpful because, you know, people aren't taking out their dictionary (laughs) the whole time they're listening to a podcast. So yeah, it was really, really accessible. And I feel like you might've even helped your guests to speak in a more accessible way, because a lot of them have kind of scientific chops and and kind of you know policy and chops and stuff like that. But you've managed to make it really accessible. Is that something that you yeah, needed to work on? Yeah, interesting.
0: I think ultimately, I wasn't I wasn't making it for people who are already convinced or who are heavily involved in climate action, because I think they already know all the stuff. Like the knowledge around climate has been around for a long time, but it's it's reaching the people who are not resistant or climate deniers, because I think that's a whole other demographic that's really hard to reach. But the people who are just living their daily lives, but maybe feel like it's not to do with them, or it's someone else to solve it, or it's a bigger problem than what they can handle. So they just get on with life. But actually, they're the sort of people who really care and would care if they knew more about it. (laughs) So I sometimes actually, I work, you know, another job as we all do. And I often think about my workmates and we we just chat as we work. And so I often hear their attitudes and their feelings about things. And and I think about them when I'm making an episode to try and explain it to people who don't know all the stuff. Like, so sometimes you've really got to give the context because people who know it often there's a little bit of jargon and there's a little bit of, you know, shorthand.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, exactly. How do you... Um, especially when you have guests who might be quite qualified to talk on a certain subject and, and may bring with them a lot of jargon because that's the world they live in. Um, and we're talking about concepts that can be quite complex. Like, for example, the most recent one of yours I've listened to is kind of about soil and, like, the, the soil carbon sponge and there's so many things that go into that that are quite scientific. It's quite hard to pass and it's quite hard to make accessible for, for an audience who've just glimpsed it and only, only through their ears. So how do you kind of make, it, make sure that it's accessible and, and make sure that it's something that if, if someone in your community was to get it, they wouldn't feel excluded?
0: Yeah, I think that's actually really important to me. I've always been the kind of person who doesn't like to be exclusive or elitist or use language that isn't. I don't know. It's always just bugged me when people do that, but I think with Jess, I was very lucky. Jess is the soil expert you were talking about, and she she is a science communicator. So I think part of her job is to explain things well. But I think I always, I do always just go back to thinking, as someone's talking, I might just cut in and say, "Oh, so what's that about?" just trying to always remember who who could be listening who might not understand and and if you talk about too much stuff that like one or two things could get by and people will keep listening but if you're constantly talking that way anyone who doesn't understand it all will just switch off because it's meaningless to them so i think in order to keep an audience and to make it as accessible as possible and ultimately we're trying to talk to people about one of the most important issues of our time <laughs> And so we need to keep them with us. (laughs) Yeah, we need to keep people with us. So, yeah, that's kind of, yeah, I'm kind of always trying to think of that in the background.
3: Well, for people who are are looking for a podcast episode of yours to listen to, do you have any favorites and do you have any sort of things that you feel like encapsulate your... What you what you like about your podcast? One
0: episode or two episodes, actually, that really stand out for me. And I had no idea it would become this when I started the process of these two interviews. But it's with John Reed, who's a sourdough baker. And I'd known him for a long time uh, in my community, and I'd worked for him in the past. And he had a very serious diagnosis, and he's subsequently passed away, actually. But I approached him saying, oh, my God, now's the time to talk to you, because clearly his health was at a very significant point. And so we had an interview, just talked about his life as a baker, but he's also been really instrumental in leading or being part of a movement called Grains. So I did one episode about him and his bakery and what he's been doing. And then another episode with a bunch of people from Grains who I wouldn't have had access to or thought to interview without him. And I think that those two episodes together really, because a lot of people talk about how to live more sustainably, how to not You know how to not subscribe to the economy as it is but develop alternative economies and things like that but a lot of it's really theoretical but he's been living it and those guys are all living it and for me it made it really real and it made me really believe that it's actually possible so on a personal level as much as i talk about this stuff all the time a lot of it's theoretical and a lot of it's like oh what we need to do and what we should all be doing but these people have been living it and it really gave me hope awesome yeah Mm -hmm. That was the first half of a two-part series of audio taken from the Nonfiction Now conference in which I was a panellist on one of the sessions. Stay tuned for the second half of this panel discussion next week when we wrestle with some of the issues facing journalism today in a world where anyone can make media and often there are no editors. In the face of the climate crisis, what can we do as media makers to cut through the noise and communicate real information to real people? So stay tuned for that next week. Thanks for listening. My name is Ali and this is Soulgrass.